Well, it was actually two questions. So. Yeah, but that's the way I do my okay, one question. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it, got it. Two this for is, the price of one. This is my show, Derek. Um, what are you doing? <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Human Element, Kara's podcast about modern marketing. I am so, so excited to have Dirk Herbert, Chief Strategy Officer at Dentsu Aegis Network US and a good friend of mine here on the pod. Welcome, Dirk. Thank you for the introduction, and I hope I can live up to the promise that you just made here. Uh, you're going to be fantastic. Okay. I know it. Let's just set a little context. Talk to us a little bit about your role here. Uh, at Dan and and what you're focused on at the moment. Right. My role at Dan at this point is as the leader of the solutions development group. Uh, The Dan organization has evolved. The focus of the overall organization is obviously a move towards being an integrated solutions provider to help drive opportunities that help us deliver against that kind of promise. And so the sort of motivating factor behind that restructure, but that really that formulation aimed at the CMO is that CMOs want more deeply integrated solutions out of their marketing services providers, right? Yes. I think there's sort of three trends that are coming together. I mean, it's similar to how strategy usually goes about deriving an insight, right? We look at the consumer, we look at the competition, we look at culture, and we figure out what sits at the intersection of those things, and that becomes the most resonant things, idea or platform. In our case, we have, from a competitive point of view, a convergence happening, right? Consulting companies are buying creative agency, just like agencies, just like Accenture just bought Droga5. You have content and media platforms stepping into the space that was formerly owned by agencies. And then you have agencies like ourselves having greater ambitions about becoming more strategic solutions providers. So that's on the one hand, as the space competition in the space is converging, we need to bring a broader, more holistic, and more well-defined value proposition to the marketplace. We have number two, what you talked about is that marketers are looking for more integrated solutions. They are being tasked to solve broader, more strategic business issues, right? As the role of the CMO has evolved sort of from a guardian of brand and communications to almost being a chief growth officer, which now is not just about brand and communications, but experiences and oftentimes actually new product development, being responsible for a technology infrastructure that can deliver all of that. They have a much broader set of needs that they need to serve. And for that, they're looking for partners who can help them more holistically. So you've been involved in a ton of pitches over the past, you know, eight, 10 months of all kinds of multiple categories and multiple size companies and what, blah, blah. What has surprised you, if anything, in the briefs from those opportunities? One of the first things that is surprising, but I think is also exciting is that clients actually oftentimes know what to ask for. My sense is that in a lot of the briefs that we're getting, when clients are asking for help, they are looking to solve for the symptoms rather than the root cause of the problem that they're dealing with. And I say it's exciting because that allows us as Dentsu Ages Network to step in a role and actually reframe the challenge, right? So not just bring insight when we deliver the answer, but actually 
actually bringing insight already to the table when we help clients understand what the problem is and the challenge that they should be solving for. I call that reframing. And I think it's one of the most powerful things that you can do. We see clients respond to that very, very well. And then from there, lay out a roadmap with a deeper understanding of what the real challenge to solve for is, what our solution would be. And I think this this opportunity to reframe is oftentimes what opens the door for us to go beyond just a single brand or a single service line and bring a broader mix of capabilities to the table, right? When you kind of look at the current state of our competition, what is it that holding companies have been getting wrong? What is it that agencies are getting? When they're getting things wrong, what are they getting wrong? Oftentimes, holding companies have been just that. They have been a container for an individual set of agency brands, but very few of them, and this is where we're hoping to lead the charge, have actually figured out ways how to rationalize those brands and connect them more deeply around client needs and do that in a way that is seamless and easy for clients. I think that is one of the biggest challenges that holding companies have faced and that we're solving for, right? And I think it takes a number of different things to do that. I think, one, you need to have an integrated strategic planning approach that actually knits together a strategic perspective that then all of the various capabilities or brands that a holding company brings to bear can rally around. I think you need to have an integrated delivery model so that when those services and solutions are actually activated in the marketplace, it's happening in a way that's coordinated and synergistic rather than siloed and disconnected. And then you need to have an underlying data and technology infrastructure that actually feeds that delivery and feeds that strategy process. I think there are a number of elements that have to be in place to deliver that well. And then you add on top of that the additional complexity of us oftentimes dealing with global clients. So then how do you do it on a global scale and, and balance the directions and guidance from a global level and the priorities that they have against the executions at a regional or local level. And that, I think, is one of the things that holding companies have struggled with and Denso Aegis Network is very actively solving for. I think you're right. I think that's a a great summary. Last question in this section, then we're going to jump to the Digital Society Index, which is a fancy, right, like that's a, a fancy title. Yes. How would you characterize the state of the partnership between agencies and CMOs, i.e., what grade would we as an industry, not us here at Dan, but as as an industry, what would we give us? And what things would you suggest to a CMO that they need to do to maximize the performance and partnership of of their agencies? Are there a couple things that kind of spring to mind? I think we're in challenging times right now. Mm. I think the fact that three quarters of clients have decided to take some part of their marketing capabilities in-house reflects a shift in how clients think about their relationships to agencies. I think part of that is driven that clients are actually recognizing that some of the things that they have formerly, quote-unquote, outsourced to agency partners or, for that matter, consultancy partners or media partners or production partners are actually now mission-critical to yeah. the success and they of the business. Be yeah. Exactly. And therefore, there is a need for the organization to develop those skills in-house, and therefore they've taken it back. I think we in the industry have made, and I get why, because it's dramatic, 
I think we've made too big a deal of that. Having been a client a number of times and been a CMO in the past, like it's okay to bring things in-house and decide this is mission critical or this is, you know, I don't want to outsource this knowledge because it's important to what it is that I think is strategically necessary for my business. I think agency reactions to that have been, in the most part, terrible. You know, I I think we've gotten very uh, sort of parochial. We've gotten very offended. We've gotten very histrionic. I I think we haven't looked at it and said, this can be good. There are different roles that we can play in that scenario. And how does that change our offering? How does that change our approach to support that kind of model? Because a hybrid model, so to speak, of insourced, outsourced, consultant, agency-based solutions is probably where, you know, that's where a lot of significantly sized and scaled clients are going to be. I chuckle at us as an industry a little bit when we, you know, when everybody sort of throws up the histrionics, and we run around with our hair on fire about this whole in, in, you know, insourcing thing. I think it could be a really good thing. I think the reaction to some extent is understandable given the other pressures that are happening, right? As I said, there's media partners, there's production, content production partners, there's consultancies moving into a space that traditionally agencies have played in, and then you have clients taking capabilities in-house. I think that's a lot of change happening. Not that it's happening all of a sudden, but I think it's sort of come to a tipping point, and agencies are finally waking up and realizing we need to evolve, which I think many agencies have not. I think it does require change. Change is scary. I think agencies have to re-envision where is the real value that we bring to the table and to clients, which also means oftentimes developing new capabilities and offerings, moving away from actually a capabilities focus to a service and solutions focus, moving away from talking to clients about what we do and instead being much, much more specific about the value and outcomes that we deliver. I agree completely. And I think that requires an evolution. It requires change, and that is causing anxiety, and that's why I think you've seen the conversations in the marketplace that you have. I love it when you defend the industry. Well, you know, (laughs) I love it. Look, I think you're exactly right, and I think you make a fantastic point. All of that has some root in our own fault, Right, And what I mean by that... We've been too comfortable for too long. And we have not defined our value, which is significant. We have not defined our value well enough, and we have not fought for appropriate compensation commensurate with that value. Yes. We are the only creative industry in the world that has no ongoing remuneration for creative assets generated beyond the day they were made. That's, Plus, we give strategy away for free, it's, just, it's, you know, from where I'm sitting. And that's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. So the Digital Society Index is a piece of work, thought leadership, that yes. we put out a month ago-ish, something like that? Mm, I think we published it about a month to a month and a half yeah, ago. Yeah, okay, okay. What is the Digital Society Index? Kind of what are we trying to get at with it? Uh, and then we'll kind of jump into some more specifics. I think the Digital Society Index was meant to take a fresh take on Maslow's hierarchy of needs mm. and translate it into the digital space. So the the idea was, can we explore whether digital products and services 
are meeting people's needs. Are they meeting their basic needs? Are they meeting their psychological needs? Are they meeting their self-fulfillment needs? And are they meeting their societal needs? Given how pervasive digital technology is, how it it's almost now the cornerstone and foundation for a lot of what we do, the thought was let's get a better handle on how digital is affecting or has affected our lives, how people feel about it, and then use this research as a way to track how attitudes towards digital technology and services and products evolve over the time. Which is an interesting premise, right? Yes. To sort of tie back into you know, Maslow's hierarchy is a foundational piece of behavioral theory, yep. I guess, right? For lack of a better description. So to sort of tie back into that and say, well, look, we live a hell of a lot differently now than we did, you know, when we were riding a horse. Yep. What are the implications of that and kind of how have those societal changes kind of changed what's important and what we quote unquote need and must have? Yep. When you kind of take a look at the study, are there things that jump out significantly in it? Yes. I mean, for me, when I look at the study and the results from it, one of the key takeaways was that consumers are becoming increasingly sophisticated about the use of digital products and services and the impact on their lives. Mm. I think in the past, there was a lot of excitement towards digital products and services. Uh, the future was bright. I got to wear shades. Unbound optimism of all the great things that uh, digital technology and services would bring to us. And I think what the survey is showing us that consumers are becoming more sophisticated in their understanding of how data is being used or abused, right? The impact of digital products and services oftentimes being addictive, our disconnectedness from each other, the impact of social media in driving an increasing polarization of political and social discourse, and the ever-increasing pace of digital innovation potentially leading to a point where people feel left behind rather than empowered and uh, move forward by it. So to me, that was one of the most interesting takeaways, that there's now an understanding that, yes, while digital technology and services have a lot of positive things, there are repercussions and consumers are now trying to figure out how to deal with those repercussions and how to balance the potential that they see and the ease and the connectivity and the entertainment that's delivered through digital products and services with some of the side effects that people are now becoming more and more acutely aware of. Are there significant differences in the optimism by country, one, and by, let's say, demographic group, two. Yeah, and I think we're, we're going to have to dig into that a little bit further. But yes, one of the things that we found is that the U.S. is actually at a point where digital optimism seems to be dipping more severely than in other parts of the world. And we will be doing a webcast on this, actually. There is a difference between men and women mm. uh, in terms of how they experience the impact of digital products and services. Women generally feeling less included, feeling that the impact on, on their psychological well-being is stronger. They're feeling less well-equipped to deal with it or less supported in dealing with the changes. So there are some differences that I think we will lean into going forward. Are there age discrepancies in that too? 
A little bit, although it turns out that among younger cohorts, the sense of repercussions is actually just as well-developed as it is with older cohorts, especially since if you look at, you know, Gen Z and millennials who've grown up with this, digital products and services are so much more embedded into yep. their lives that I think the repercussions that they're experiencing are heightened as well. Yeah, they're more acute. Yeah. Right? I mean, just observing my kids, basic rites of passage, finding a partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, breaking up with a partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, going to college, graduating, going to prom, playing in a big game, scoring the winning goal, missing a penalty, tripping in the middle of the cafeteria. All Everything those, is documented. Yeah, well, and, and all, so all those things that are big things when you're you know, 14, 16, 17, 18 years old are now fully observable, repeatable, replayable, and commentable by your entire worldview, and that is... And permanent, because now there's a digital record. Yeah, and that's terrifying. Yeah. That's terrifying. Even, you know, if you look at transition, kids used to leave high school, and that was an American opportunity for redefinition at Reinvention, college. Reinvention, yes. You know, it's like Gatsby. I could become whatever. And that's more difficult now, because everybody's already gone to your Insta, and they've been like, oh, you know... That kid likes X, Y, and Z right. and, you know, wore an Avengers costume two years ago. Whatever. Yeah. Which is interesting, actually, because I was born and raised in Germany. Yes. I went to high school in Germany, but went to college here in the States. And one of the things that I always found is that in Germany, the high school is only half day, right? Yeah. So people are together during the first half of the day in an academic kind of environment and then any kind of personal activity, whether it's sports or music or arts or whatever it might be, happens outside of the school, right? So as an individual, you are much less observable, right? Your p academic peers can observe you from nine till yep. noon and then you go into a private sphere where you can pick your group and niches yep. and interests. So as an individual, you have much greater capability, as you said, to reinvent yourself yes. rather than having a track record follow you or because you spend so much time yep. with a group of people that can consistently observe you, which yes. I felt was always the issue in American high schools and why I felt peer pressure in Germany, I think, is a very different thing than peer pressure in the United States. Because if you truly spent the entire day with the same group of people that can observe you over so many different occasions, whether it's academic yep. or personal engagement, there's just a much greater level of control, much less an ability to sort of step out and present yourself yourself in a new way to try on different skins, which I think is, is the equivalent of what you're talking about, yeah. right? The yeah, notion absolutely. of being observed by a consistent group of people and that preventing you as an individual, you being able to try new things or have a fresh start or present yourself in different ways, it's an issue. Let me also talk about a second sort of big observation. Yeah, oh, please. That is the observation that people that in the past have been the heaviest users of digital products and services are now the ones that are actually taking a step back mm. and being more cautious about their use of digital products and services. Where We saw that up to 72% of Americans have taken steps to scale back their digital activities. And the heaviest users of digital products and services have done that the most. That yep. includes 
actively reducing the amount of data that people share about themselves online with marketers and others, installing ad blockers, disconnecting and deleting their social media accounts, and actively limiting the amount of time that they spend on their phone and with digital products and services. And that, to me, is actually a little bit of a wake-up moment for marketers because we've already been living in an age where marketers were really challenged to engage consumers, yep. right? There was a, is a really interesting statistic from the ANA that they released last November that shows despite us having lived through one of the, if not the strongest economy in the United States over the past 10 years, 50% of Fortune 500 companies did not grow over the past three to five years. Yes. So half of Fortune 500 companies have not been able to advance their profit, advance their growth, despite the fact that the economic context was incredibly fertile for that, right? I used and to work for one of them. There we go. Mm -hmm. So that points then to the challenge of marketers to meaningfully engage consumers in a world where, A, there's more competition, there is more, more noise, and you have now consumers who are, to some extent, actively rejecting the advances of marketers, right? And now we're finding that consumers are also taking a step back. I think the key thing for marketers is to figure out how do we connect in a meaningful way in this very, very challenging environment. Yeah. The natural follow-on is... What do you do? Yeah, and I and I think one of the things that you and I've discussed in a previous conversation is, especially in this market in the United States, and especially at this moment, there is potentially an opportunity for brands around purpose and ideals and meaning, and more broadly put, sort of this sense of humanity. A, do you agree with what we've talked about before? And B, <laughs> yes. And B, what 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 does that look like from your perspective? A, I agree. I think there's a reason why I think we started talking about this notion of stop marketing, start mattering, right? Yeah. Which is a pretty bold thing for a yeah. marketing communications company to tell their clients. It might not be the official line that we're using, but I think it's certainly the ethos of what we're trying to get across. Taglines are highly overrated. <laughs> <laughs> that said, it's pretty pithy. What we've seen, and I think what you're referencing is that, that we live at a time when consumers expect brands to be more and mean more. So on the one yeah. hand, there's this conversation of, hey, consumers are blocking the advances of marketers, right? But that doesn't mean that marketers who get it right won't get a warm reception, right? We know that consumers no longer are happy with just sort of a transactional kind of relationship. Consumers want to be inspired by brands. Consumers want brands to manifest how they actively support the life and ambition. Uh, an Edelman survey, the trust barometer, just showed that I think almost three quarters of consumers now expect brands to drive social change. So I think really what, what consumers are telling us is this notion of stop marketing at me as just a transactional buyer of products and instead start mattering to me as an individual and as a member of a community, right? And it's in that context that I think brands need to start to think about how to better connect with consumers. And one way of doing that, I know we oftentimes very quickly get into a conversation about you know data and technology and personalization, but I think there's a more fundamental step which involves brand rethinking the ideas that they ground themselves in, yeah. right? I talk about the notion 
of brands grounding themselves in ideas that connect with people and people with each other, right? Mm. Brands that rally around a point of view, that rally around human truth or rally around the fundamental interests that consumers have. I think the time where brands could rely on interrupting what consumers are interested in is over. I think the new modus operandi is not interrupting, but intersecting with what people are interested in. And that's then, I think, where these new ideas come into play. How do you find an idea that, on the one hand, is inherently true to the essence of what the brand is all about, but on the other hand, connects to what is culturally relevant, competitively differentiating, and personally relevant to a consumer. And I think that is where the art and science of what we do in the marketing and communications industry comes in. And I think we still do to an unparalleled extent. I don't see consulting agencies stepping into that space anytime soon. This, this understanding of people and culture, the intersection of that, and how to embed a brand in that in a way that seems intuitive and relevant rather than coming out of the blue. A rousing rallying cry. Thank yes. you, Dirk. I like that. All right. Ready? Ready. Lightning round. Favorite digital experience, not Dan related. MTA ticks. Ah. I love the ability to not have to stand in line <laughs> at that goddamn uh, <laughs> ticket machine and instead just type it into my phone as I hop on the train to JFK and just activate it while I'm on the train. MTA it's changed ticks. my life. Love it. Best piece of content recently consumed of any kind? Written word, podcast, binge on Netflix, movie, whatever. I'm going to have two. Yep, that's all right. You're um, allowed. One is The Americans. I just caught up on that ah. and literally binged it from start to finish. It's supposed to be good. Amazing. Okay. It's, it's almost as good as Breaking Bad, which was the other high mark okay. for me, but highly is recommend that it. Is Russell? Is she in Yeah. There? Yeah, okay. It's awesome. It's okay. it's just amazing. And then I read a book. It's called Sapiens, A Brief History of yeah, Humankind. Yeah, yeah. And it's just an amazing overview of human evolution, the key moments that have shaped us, who we are. And it's it's just a great way to comprehend why we are who we are and gives great context to sort of understand what's going on and potentially what to do about it. As you and I have discussed, you were like the 10th person to mention that book. I still haven't read it because I'm a loser, but I will. I will. I Please promise. do. I promise. Please do. Best career advice you've either given or received? Take the initiative. <laughs> well, that's a pretty good one, isn't it? Yeah. Especially in chaos. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with but that. But even in general, I think yes. people are drawn to people who have a sense and desire to move a process forward. Like I'm going to give it a whirl. Um, yeah. yep. It's what I hire for, so... Well, there you go. There so, we go. for the, our massive millions of people <laughs> in the audience, if you want to work with Dirk, that's what you got to do. Competitor you most admire? This, I can't wait for this. I, at this point, I would say Accenture Interactive. Yeah. Their growth rate has been amazing. Yes. They're making huge inroads. They seem to have crossed over successfully from their consulting business and the strong relationships that they have around solving broader business challenges and the connections and relationships they have with C-level decision makers to now work their way through digital transformation into the communications and experience space. And now that they've bought Droga 5, we need to pay attention and meet and exceed the challenge. 
I agree with you, by the way. Formidable competitor. Uh, Brian Whipple is impressive. The organization's impressive. Blah, blah. Caveat, caveat. You know, yes, I'm, I, I agree. The cultural challenges are not insignificant. I, I just think that's something to watch. Thing that people should know about you, but they don't. Might have mentioned it earlier already. I'm not a native here, born and raised in Germany. Do you have a football club that you support? No. no that's that right. That was one of the reasons why I had to leave Germany. <laughs> I'm just not, don't care. I'm not willing to make an emotional commitment to a sports franchise. Of any kind? Of any kind. Not just football? No. What do you emotionally commit yourself People. to? People. Fair enough. I got, okay. That's a good answer, Dirk. Okay. Thank you. But is there... The passion? Uh, are we yeah, talking yeah, about yeah, passion? Yeah, yeah, like... Food. Yeah. Food, okay. Food. I emotionally commit myself to food. <laughs> Absolutely. Technology. Yes. All right. There we, I, knew, I knew I'd be successful one of these Sorry, times. Sorry, yes. And video gaming. I've, I oh, just, really? So you're I'm, I'm going to have to come, come clean. I'm a huge gamer. All right. So talk to me about games that you play. <sighs> Probably easier to talk about games I don't play. Um, Call of Duty, Assassin's Creed, God of War, all of that kind of good all stuff. All that stuff. Yeah. Now, did you grow up playing like old-time video games? Yes. I grew up with a Commodore 64. Sure. I then had an early Atari game, yeah, so yeah. Space Invader yeah, and Missile absolutely. Command and Centipede Loved and all now that that's kind of my stuff. era right, right. there. Um, actually, I started with Pong. Yes. I started with Pong. <laughs> then the Commodore 64, then the Atari, and then I took a break yeah. like for 20 years or so. Yes. And then at some point, I sort of rediscovered my love for gaming, which a lot of the games that I also tended to play and still do were very strategic in nature, like SimCity and things along yeah, those okay. lines. So I kind of fed into, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. obviously, what led me into the career that I'm in, which is yep. strategy and planning. Derek, I can't thank you enough. You've been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. So that's another wrap on The Human Element. Uh, please, if you uh, listen to pods, find it anywhere that you do that activity. Don't forget to subscribe to us or perish the thought. Give us a like, and we'll be out to you real soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.